to talk to the teacher about poetry. I'm John. And I am James, the aforementioned teacher talking about poetry. Today we're going to be talking about a specific poem. We're going to be talking about To a Nightingale by R.F. Langley. Before we dive in, James, I think it would be good, because obviously you sent me this poem. I read it. I have my own sort of overview of what I think it's about, right. what I think the point is. Because obviously I think this is newer to me than it is to you. Since you sent it to me, I presume you'd read it at least once. So I think it might be good if I propose what I think it's about, and then you just correct me. Oh, I'm not going to say I'm going to correct you. These are your opinions, John. I, I might steer you in a direction. In a different direction, indeed. Yeah, a completely different direction, but uh, let's go with that. Reading it, so, so very broad strokes, my takeaway from it was that the main theme is sort of mortality, specifically death, it feels very much like. So what I took from it was that it was a narrator sort of talking about their life as an, sort of a ramble through the woods and in highlighting specific things they see, they are highlighting the things that they viewed as important. And ultimately, the, at the very end, as we reach the final few lines, it feels like, they are approaching death, seems to be the the metaphor there as they approach the bridge, because that's really the only thing, that's the thing in here that I thought represented something very specific and final. Um, it is the end of the poem, it's the end of his journey, and water has always been sort of traditionally associated with thresholds, boundaries. So it's often used as a boundary between states, we have, and the bridge is sort of the transition between those two states. And so I thought the bridge represented death specifically, um, sort of harking all the way back to sort of the river Styx and you cross that river to go to. And so that was my takeaway, that the theme of this is his life and his death. Is that your reading as well? Wow. Well, we're hitting some of the big themes right here, aren't we? Um... I am never going to dispute some classical references in a poem. Absolutely happy to go with the river sticks and the deep symbols of death. Um, but that's not really how I read this poem at all. Uh, interesting. So we have a potentially lively discussion on our hands. <laughs> um, not that I'm disagreeing, obviously, as I said right from the get-go. Uh, but here's my steer. I read this as potentially a journey of a life, yes, um, but I think it is also a very, very specific journey. And I heard you mention these particular details, these things that the poet, the speaker really notices about the things that are on the road. And he's very precise about the things that he sees. And so I think that partly this is about attention and paying attention to the world and the very, very small things that are kind of wondrous. And then by doing that, there is a kind of almost revelation, I think, at the end of this poem, which to me is much more of an opening out of perspective of a realisation of a world beyond the very, very small scale and also a world beyond the kind of the ordinary yeah the, the thing that made me think it was very sort of rather than being advice to pay attention to things 
the reason that I thought it was more sort of the narrator highlighting what was important to them was the use of sort of your Latin names for animals, for example, and um, for the flora and fauna <laughs> they see as they walk along. You don't need that generally in order to just pay attention to a butterfly. I don't necessarily need to know its name. However, the fact that they have learned those names tells me that that is important to them. And so that's why I viewed it more as them sort of almost a self-exploration of their life and what they have viewed as important as they approach the end of it. Hmm. Yes, I really like that. I do think that those particular details are really important to this speaker. And I think that for me, one of the other things that's really important to them is language and that these names are the names of particular features of nature, but they are also often quite beautiful or certainly quite striking mm. in themselves. And I think that that plays a really important role here and is one of the reasons that I am such a fan of this poem and this poet, because poetry is kind of also about having fun with words and language. And I think that's something that this does very well. Yeah. Doesn't rhyme though, does it? (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um, Which is always a shame because I found it. So I found this a difficult read um, because I didn't find the subject matter particularly interesting. I didn't find the phrasing particularly interesting um, because it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't, I didn't find it very pleasing to read phonically or however you would like to describe it. It Mm -hmm. felt like a collection of terms more than anything. Um, As in, here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing. There wasn't really a story to it other than, I mean, it starts with nothing along the road, which isn't the most sort of captivating opening line, I would say. Well, I mean, it's hard to argue that nothing along the road is any more captivating (laughs) than that, but... You know, sometimes poets like to play with expectations and I wonder if later on that nothing might not be quite what it seems. And my feeling is that actually there is more sound and more of a kind of sonorous quality to this poem than you might be giving it credit for in that first reading. And to me, I sort of think about in the history of poetry, the... Middle English experience of poetry in lots of cases did not rhyme and instead used a form of what was called Mm -hmm. syllabic verse and would put much more of an emphasis on things like alliteration and consonants, which are where sounds that are similar in words are kind of grouped together. So there'll be a group of like like a knick-knack in a lot names and very much so um, as a little <laughs> taster of what is to come here and that is quite unusual to a modern audience who are much more used to rhymes and to those similar sounds but actually i think that that way of patterning sound can create some quite different and unusual effects that sometimes are deliberately less attractive but sometimes can also be more so and i think that 
when as a reader I try to tune into some of that it becomes much more interesting to me after a couple of mm. listens. So you're saying this one is an acquired taste rather than whatever the opposite of an acquired taste is. I think <laughs> an unacquired an instant taste, hit. A rejected taste. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's one of those that you read the first time and then benefits from savouring a little bit in the mouth, from coming back to after a while in a sort of slightly stretched mm. wine metaphor. So I have a couple of questions on the theme. Obviously, it's called To a Nightingale. Nightingales feature a lot in poetry, don't they? Um, and so really the question is, what is the nightingale representing here? Is it the poet's own voice or is it something else? Wow. I think that the symbol of the nightingale is most prominent because of John Keats's poem, Ode to a Nightingale, which is quite a famous poem to the kinds of people who like reading poetry uh, that was written in the Romantic, with a capital R, period, um, about 200 years ago, and has been punching <laughs> above its weight ever since, as birds go. Partly because the Nightingale does have quite a beautiful song, and it is a bird that is not especially common within the UK at the moment, and therefore is something a little bit more elusive, uh, and its song has therefore acquired this slightly mythical quality of beauty and something a little bit unattainable. But I also think that here this represents someone on a journey towards something very specific within nature. And I think that the idea of it being the poet's voice is interesting and would create an interesting comparison between something that's meant to have quite a sonorous musical voice and, as you've kind of said yourself, the slightly almost uglier mm -hmm. sounds in the poem, the clashes um, that are quite far removed from birdsong. Yeah, I thought it was either because the entire from the get from the title you're waiting for this nightingale to appear, much as the poet themselves are, or the narrator is travelling this journey, which you presume will end in them finding a nightingale. And so I thought it was either the poet finding their voice in the way that sort of the nightingale song is appreciated, the poet wishes their voice to be appreciated, or I thought because it's a nightingale and the association with the night to the end of the day, I thought that neatly tied with my proposal that the theme is death and the end of a life and that transition into the night. Yes, I think that that quality is there. And I do think that it is interesting in this poem that it is about the pursuit of something and the search for a nightingale in some way, even though the title is very direct and says to a nightingale, which sort of implies that you are talking directly to it or speaking to it there. And in 
the Keats poem, the bird is absolutely front and center. And, you know, you talked about <laughs> the first line a little while ago of nothing along the road, which does not bode terribly well <laughs> for finding anything interesting. Um, so, yeah, there is quite a lot about absence. And in that respect, I think it certainly can be about. Yes, yeah, I well. didn't read the title as reading to the nightingale um, in whereas sort of an ode to a nightingale is directed at the nightingale in a way. I read it as more of a journey to a nightingale as in that's where we're going to. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that might be a misreading now. Of, <laughs> now you've said that. No, I think, no, I think, I think, I think that it, this is absolutely a journey. I think it's a journey towards something that is, yeah, elusive and, that the speaker potentially arrives at, mm. potentially doesn't. I'm definitely I mean, persuaded by that. Um, is there anything we should know about Langley before we read it in full? For the poem, I don't think there's anything essential. I think you might want to know that Langley was a very, uh, a person who was very interested in the environment and the very specific knowledge of insects and birds and that's one of the reasons why these Latin terms and scientific names for things appear. Um, and that he also wrote some journals alongside his poems. And if you read this poem and think, oh, this is really a fascinating poem, then if you go and read his journals, you will also learn a remarkable amount more about some of the Interesting. Well, I think we've teased it long enough. Would you like to read it to us? Yeah. I would be delighted. I'm Thank you very, much. very excited about this one. So this is To a Nightingale by R.F. Langley. Nothing along the road, but petals, maybe. Pink behind and white inside. Nothing but the coping of a bridge. Mutes on the bricks, hard as putty, then in the sun as metal. Burls of Grimia. Hairy, hoary, with their seed capsules uncurling. Red mites bowling about on the baked lichen, and what look like casual landings, striped flies, Helena, Phaonia could they be? This month, the lemon, I'll say primrose-coloured moths, which flinch along the hedge, then turn in to hide, are yellow shells, not shaded broad bars. Lines waver, camp to grammar. Heat off the road and the knick-knack of names, Scotopteryx, Darkwing, the flutter. Doubles and blurs the margin, fuscus and white. Stop at nothing, to stop here at nothing, as a chaffinch sings interminably all day. A chiff-chaff, purring of two turtle doves. Voices, and some vibrate with tenderness. I say none of this for love. It is anyone's gif-gaff. It is anyone's kelka shows. No business of mine. Mites which ramble, caterpillars which curl up as question marks. Then one note. Five times, louder each time. 
followed, after a fraught pause, by a soft cuckle of wet pebbles, which I could call a glottal rattle. I am empty, stopped at nothing, as I wait for this song to shoot. The road is rising as it passes the apple tree and makes its approach to the bridge. Thank you very much. Uh, the first thing I noticed reading through it is the it isn't divided anywhere at all. Even the sort of the lines bleed into each other. There are no stanzas. It's sort of presented as a, a, a single block of text, if you will. Um, what is the reason for that, do you think? Yes, it is not a poem to choose if you were going to give a very clear example of what a poem looks mm. like, is it? I think that there is... So there is actually an organisation to this poem, but it's quite unusual. Um, there is no rhyme, as you say. There is this one single stanza, which therefore arguably mm -hmm. isn't really a stanza. But in pretty much every line, there are seven syllables, which is quite odd and particularly unusual because the tradition if we have a tradition in English poetry, is that there are ten syllables to a line. Mm -hmm. That's the Shakespearean tradition of iambic pentameter. So even having an even number of syllables helps with creating a kind of rhythm, but this has an odd number of syllables, and it means that this poem is kind of constrained. It's almost trapped inside its own form, really. And there are no words with hyphens. They're not kind of split across... And you kind of pointed out that a lot of the sentences continue over line breaks, that when you read them out, it's almost impossible to know where the line breaks are. Um, and so one of the things it does is has this kind of separation between what you see when you read the poem and see it on the page and what you hear mm. as it's read out. And there is a gap there. There is a almost a kind of contrast between those two things. Uh which might be relevant to something that Langley is trying to do. Um, and then I think there is an extent to which this is hinting at being, just like, the just like the first line does, hinting at there being something ordinary, low-key, almost kind of unremarkable about the situation. And yet very subtly there is something a little bit awry, a little bit unusual. That's my speculative suggestion. So do you think he's deliberately there? trying to unsettle the reader with these sort of seven syllables per line, deliberately not giving punctuation at the end of lines so things bleed into each other? Do you think that's an intended device to unsettle the reader? To me, there's a combination there, one of which is that, is the sense of perhaps unsettling, perhaps making a reader pay attention to things they wouldn't pay attention to otherwise because you sort of naturally pay attention to the words mm. at the end of lines um, and perhaps the beginning of lines. And so you get two buts at the end of line one and line three, for example. And so there is an immediate kind of hesitancy that in certainly a normal rhyming poem, rhyming on the word but would be 
mm-hmm. a little bit more unusual, I think. And I also think that there is a little bit of the speaker slash the poet setting themselves a little bit of a challenge. And when we talked earlier about being playful with language and enjoying the ways that it works, one of the ways that, you know, play often works is by setting up some rules and then seeing what you can achieve within the rules. And I think that's an element of this too, of how far can you go within this surprisingly rigid structure? Yes. It's interesting you tie back there to your original point about the theme where you felt that the theme was that it was almost instructional that you should be paying attention to the world around you as you travel through it. And you've Mm -hmm. tied that back there with the idea that because of its bizarre structure, it makes the reader have to pay attention in order to proceed. Um, And I thought that was quite an interesting sort of connection there, sort of reinforcing your original point. Um, Yeah. All part of the master plan. (laughs) I do think, I mean, from your perspective, these Latin terms, where do you think... Like, where do they fit into this play, if you will? Is it deliberately to sort of challenge the reader to, do, oh, do, do you know this one? Or does it serve a different function? I have a few things I think about this. I don't think it's meant to be presenting you with a bunch of words and going, <laughs> ah, do you know this one? There's a particular form of sadism that I'm not sure poets necessarily go in for all the time uh, implied in that. I do, I'm going to have to acknowledge the influence of another poetry podcast Mm. here, which can also be a shout out because I think it's a great poetry podcast. Um, The comedian Frank Skinner has a podcast about poetry. And when he talks about various poems and finds moments like this, he identifies these moments as what he calls advent Mm. calendar moments. Because you can take that moment and it's a little bit like a window and you just open up the window And if you look behind it, you'll find this whole new world of things. And it invites you to go and open the window. And in this case, it's go and search for what that means. Go and find what this particular animal is. Because this is written in 2011, I think. It's at a time when the internet is pretty prominent. And so it's perfectly possible to just type this word into the search engine of your choice and you'll get information about it and you'll also get kind of remarkable pictures of these different creatures. So I think it is an invitation to discover more rather than being a wall that is put up to make it less accessible. I also reckon he's doing this partly because this is a precise way of identifying the things the speaker sees and the full names the non-latin names of some of these things are often more long-winded and these are these latin terms are more concise and so that's part of the play here or part of the attention to what something really is and then they also kind of create this sound patterning that he talks about and you, earlier you mentioned the knick-knack of names and it immediately gets followed by <laughs> scotopteryx <laughs> which is an absolute (laughs) nightmare to read out in the middle of a poetry podcast, but it's just a delicious sounding word. And 
if ever there was a knickknack to a name, then surely that's it. So there is kind of a beauty in being able to name these things and in the words and the connection between words and how these things look. Nice. So one of the other things I noticed, James, is it opens, as we said previously, with nothing along the road. At the end, he says, Mm -hmm. I am empty, stopped at nothing. And in the middle, we have, again, this stop at nothing to stop here at nothing. Now, the middle one there is interesting because it's a bit of a pun in a way because if you describe yourself as you'll stop at nothing, it it usually means sort of there is nothing which will stop you trying to do whatever it is you're trying to do. But here it's it's the inverse would be the first reading that they've stopped at literally nothing. Um, but this, I guess this nothing is also a theme or is it a device that is using? What a question. <laughs> I'm not sure I have an answer to that immediate question, but I love your point about that ambiguity, that two ways of reading stop at nothing. And I think that's another example of the playfulness in the language of this poem of being able to find phrases that within the English language can hold two fundamentally (laughs) opposite meanings, right? That's a bizarre and remarkable discovery. And it's sort of embodied in what this poem is trying to say, really, I think, about being arrested, being like made to pause and look at something that appears to be just an absence, but in fact has all of this rich detail. And I feel like, particularly reading the poem more than once, the image that is created of just stopping on the road and looking down the road, and it could just be any ordinary photo of a road with a bridge at the end of it. And yet there is so much life and particularity as the speaker investigates that a little bit further. And there is a kind of tenacity, a determination in doing that. And that appears in a couple of other places where the speaker kind of corrects himself, where he says that the the, the moths are lemon and then I'll say primrose coloured. It's like really, really nuancing mm. and being precise. And that's kind of a lovely thing in a poem because poems are normally so polished and so kind of seem to be perfectly finished. And this feels a little bit more, almost it is presenting something more rough and ready of the experience of looking and then looking again. And actually, I think it's incredibly carefully finished. But it's again that thing of, coming back to something where you, you you kind of can't at first see the evidence of it and then you suddenly begin to pick out the evidence of either the life there or the craftsmanship in the poem. Um, and I mean, I also wonder, you said earlier about whether this poem is about death and I wonder whether the nothing in the poem is actually in some way a representation of that death that is approaching and i'm not sure whether you would 
know this, you certainly wouldn't know it from just reading the poem, but very shortly afterwards, um, R.F. Langley did die. It's one of the last poems that he reads and that he writes and has published. And so there isn't always a connection between writers and their, their work and their life, but it's very possible that that's a thing that's on his mind and that he feels that that is approaching and yet at the same time that he is going to just continue in the kind of looking at the beauties of yeah, the life. Yeah, and that, that was something had. I was considering as you were talking about the nothingness there. Um, it, because we end with, if we sort of assume momentarily that the bridge is the end of his life, and my thought was perhaps the nothingness is a representation of his sort of view of, well, if the end of the journey is there, did the rest of it matter? And so nothing along the road, you open with sort of the futility of life if it just ends in death anyway. But then between the nothing along the road and the bridge at the end, he finds all these details that he can appreciate um, and then sort of the stopping at nothing, sort of him finding things that are trivial and perhaps futile, but still worth his time to stop before he gets to the bridge. It reminds me of the line that gets passed around sometimes. I hope I'm going to get this right. What is this life if full of care? We have no time to stop and stare. And I wonder if that's a little bit of what the speaker is Perhaps, doing here yeah. as well. So, yeah, in summary, it's about death. <laughs> as yeah, well, 95% of poems are. Mm -hmm. It's probably also about love, but mainly for yeah, love about nature. Yeah, it's about the love of nature. That's what makes death. it a poem. Um, the only one that he's missed out on is the American dream, because I know that's also a common theme, but... <laughs> mm -hmm. and tax, death and taxes. And taxes. <laughs> Brilliant. I think we've paid a lot of attention to this one, as instructed, and I think that's quite enough. I think let's, let's get to the bridge already. So, Mission accomplished. As ever, thank you for listening. Goodbye for now.